Welcome to Recovery Talks, a Fairbanks podcast where experts from Fairbanks Treatment and Recovery Center, located in Indianapolis, Indiana, take time to discuss unique aspects of addiction, substance use disorder, and recovery, as well as other relevant issues with our guests. I'm your host, Kathleen Gill. I've worked at Fairbanks since 2007, and I am a woman living in recovery. Today on Recovery Talks, we'll be discussing the addiction crisis in Indiana with Dr. Robin Newhouse, the Dean of the IU School of Nursing. Dr. Newhouse, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and congratulations. I'm so pleased to meet you and just congratulate you on your recovery and your sustained recovery. That is an accomplishment. It's a lifetime accomplishment, and I'm so pleased to meet you. Thank you. It is an honor, and I am so very excited to learn about the grand challenge and the work that uh, you folks are doing here with the research. So tell me a little bit about you. Um, you started out in in nursing. You started your career in nursing. I absolutely did. I volunteered when I was in high school at, at the local hospital, Anne Arundel Medical Center. I had no idea uh, what a nurse did, quite honestly. And I was so impressed at the important role that they played and how well people did. I was assigned to the emergency room. And I remember looking at, at them and watching and realizing how important they were in recognizing the human response to different phenomena, pain, bleeding, and taking immediate action. So I had no idea how integrated they were into the healthcare team and how important they were in the outcomes that patients achieved. So uh, it, it is a science. It is a career where you can work across many kinds of settings and with different kinds of people, populations, and communities. It is uh, a career that was completely unexpected, but I couldn't have chosen a better one. How did you transition into academia? Well, I was in uh, the clinical environment for uh, quite a while, usually critical care settings, operating rooms, uh, emergency departments. And the trajectory um, caused me to take a higher level leadership job, one after another, a supervisor, then you know a manager, then a director of nursing. And at the time, um, every one of those steps were taken because I felt like I needed more information to assess the interventions, the staffing ratios to make sure that we were providing high quality of care. So that took me back for a couple master's degree. And I was a director of uh, nursing at uh, a large teaching hospital in Baltimore and a very big portfolio. And I thought, gosh, my analytics for my master de master's degrees, I need a little more. So I went back for a PhD. And after the PhD, I continued as director of nursing and um, conducted a couple studies and then was uh, recruited to Johns Hopkins Hospital to be the nurse researcher with a joint appointment to the School of Nursing uh, at Hopkins. And uh, 
what ended up being the PI of many, many studies there. I started my funding portfolio, received a K award from Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And the studies that were conducted during that K award actually launched my career. I ended up finishing the K award early. And I had to finish early because I was funded for a cluster randomized uh, design testing a quality collaborative in 23 rural hospitals in five states. So that that launched the beginning. And once uh, you are a scholar and a researcher, you need to have an academic home that can support that kind of activity. And oh, by the way, I figured out that I love teaching students too and mentoring students. It is one of the life pleasures of uh, being in academia. Wonderful, wonderful. So how did you launch into this passion and focus into the addiction crisis that we have going on here in Indiana? Well, interestingly enough, um, the I am a health services researcher, so I study how health services are organized to improve quality care. Part of that is evidence-based practices, evidence-based interventions. Well, not surprising to you, turns out that uh, back, it was probably uh, in the early 2000s, probably the 90s, that the Joint Commission recognized that a third of the people that were admitted to the hospital had risky alcohol use. Mm. So starting to see that uh, signal. We certainly had other kinds of addictions that were on the radar. So when I asked my clinical uh, partners about what they were experiencing uh, in hospitals, it was pretty clear that they weren't screening using valid and reliable tools. They didn't have a good process to refer people. So I had a study funded, another one by Robert Wood Johnson, actually, which was to develop and test a toolkit using a, a cluster randomized design in acute care hospitals. So all I did is follow what the clinical problem is and mm -hmm. listen to clinicians that were working with patients and provided something they need. Well, it turns out the toolkit was pretty effective at implementation. Um, that was followed by a study of 14 hospitals, another cluster randomized design, which was an implementation study. And turns out that uh, nurses can use those tools, and we significantly improved the uh, screening, uh, the brief intervention, the referral to treatment in, in that study wasn't as uh, robust as we had hoped, so we have another solution for that. But it uh, turns out it's just following, it's putting evidence-based practices together in a toolkit and helping others use it and giving them the tools that they need that are just implementation strategies that we learn about as implementation scientists. Sure. And of course, one study leads to another study. And when you see that there's problems with referral to treatment, that led to our study of the workforce in the 14 market zip codes of uh, the hospitals that we were working with. And working with Bowen's Workforce Center here in Indiana, they surveyed the treatment center. So not only could we provide information back to the hospitals we worked with, but we learned a lot about the treatment centers and the workforce available. Then we looked at the state statute to understand um, where the uh, different providers can work, and we looked for the intersectionalities and actually are now modeling that intersectionality because everybody doesn't have to do everything but everyone has something to do. That so, is for yes, sure. Yes. It is so important that 
our communities are coming together, the hospitals, the education fields, the uh, law enforcement. It is so critical that we've got everybody participating in this addiction crisis that we have going on. Absolutely. And then then we um, developed a referral to treatment tool, and it's gone through three phases of usability testing with uh, patients, social workers, physicians, and nurses. So uh-huh. we're trying to solve that clinical problem, too. So I'm just saying I study a lot of things that are evidence-based interventions, but there couldn't be anything more important than addictions right. today in Indiana. Do you find that the medical teams are being, that education is changing around how they are training the uh, doctors and nurses about addiction? Yes. uh, That is one of the things that these horrendous statistics have taught us that we need to do a better job, not only teaching and educating our own students that are graduating from Indiana University, um, but uh, we also have needs in primary care because, as you know, uh, the primary care physicians and nurses, advanced practice nurses, have uh, waivers so they can uh, provide medication-assisted treatment, so it gets to be a bigger issue. So, yes, one of the types of studies that we funded through the Grand Challenge that I know you'll ask me about in a yes. minute is interprofessional education. It's interprofessional education on addictions. But, yes, more more is needed um, and we, in, in nursing, provide a minimum information about addictions. We have to do much more. I know when I talk to students about screening, brief intervention, referral for treatment, and I see them giggling when I tell them, you know, if you've had four or more drinks in a day, which, of course, is binge drinking. And um, when I see them giggling, I know that we need to talk about that at that that point. So it's here uh, in our community. It certainly is something we have to have a conversation about. And um, that's sort of an educational strategy and a screening strategy, too, that is uh, not necessarily academic, but nonetheless important to have the conversations and help people recognize their own health behaviors. Right. Tell me a little bit about this grand challenge and how you and Governor Holcomb and IU Health has collaborated together and put so much focus on this very important project. So in um, 2017, Governor Holcomb put forth his uh, state plans. He had done listening tours and was struck by the amount of Hoosiers and the experience of Hoosiers around addictions and deaths. As you know, we were starting to see escalating overdose deaths. We were seeing data about the uh, economic impact to Indiana. We were hearing stories of uh, suffering. Uh, We were hearing from employers about um, drug screening and drug uh, use in in, uh, the um, employment. So, So there wasn't a sector that hadn't experienced this problem. So President McGrabbie called Governor Holcomb and said, what what can we do to be helpful? And after that conversation, um, he called and asked me to complete a report 
of our capacity as IU to respond to addictions in partnership with a, another group of people from across our faculty members across um, IU. So we came together and examined the kind of work we're doing now, the investigators that were working in this space. We asked uh, investigators to provide us with a two-page uh, brief on what have they learned in their research and what would they do tomorrow if they had the opportunity. And um, we recognized a number of things in that uh, process. Number one, we had great capacity, and particularly in five areas, uh, data sciences and analytics. Uh, for example, the, uh, the uh, people that were dealing with addictions were looking for the signals and data to be able to tell if we were improving or going in the wrong direction. And we need common data elements, uh, not only working in the research arena for addictions, but also working with the state, the management performance hub, to be able to evaluate what's happening where it's happening, who it's happening to and with. So providing data was one of the first things that we were certainly asked about. That was one of our areas of capacity. Education, training, and certification was another uh, very important academic organization. We are pretty good at uh, right. education and training. there. Yes. Um, and policy analysis, economics, and law. Many of our elected officials were asking, what can we do in this legislative season? How can we help? What are the policy options that we can use? So uh, the, that was certainly one of the important areas. And then basic applied and translational research, basic being bench research, trying to understand maybe in animal models, mechanisms of action of addictions, environmental practices, pressures that, uh, that enhance or inhibit the likelihood of addictions, those kinds of things applied. Uh, so evidence-based kinds of interventions that we would test and translational research, evidence that we know to work, the implementation kinds of studies to uh, the population, to people and uh, the community. And then a community and workforce development was the last area where we had capacity. So those areas, and uh, we also knew very early that we had to have partnerships in this. It wasn't just science. It's never just science. Right. The paper never does the trick. Right. Uh, it's about working with people to make sure that the, the evidence is trustworthy, that it's used in the populations, that it's ta tailored in the way. We also knew that we had to think about this in a socio-ecological framework. So it's not just about patients. It's about the families they live in, the societies and communities that they live in, the organizations that they intersect with, the policymakers. Sure. So we knew we had to um, approach this in multiple at multiple levels, mm -hmm. and, and we also knew that we had to learn quickly, be iterative, encourage teams to work together and learn from each other and expand uh, their thinking. So the report of our capacity to respond was sent to Indiana University's president, President Michael McRobbie. And it was about a week later he called and asked if I would be the lead investigator for the Grand Challenge. So that's how that happened. So there, yeah. And um, what, what an important, it is just exactly what a public university should be doing, is working toward the health of the people. 
So uh, what an honor for us to be able to work in this way in an investment of $50 million in those five areas in partnership uh, with uh, not only the state, Eskenazi, IU Health, and over 140 other partners and settings. That is uh, amazing. Since we have deployed in 2017. Well, and the evidence-based practices are so critical when you get into the treatment standpoint it is imperative that we have evidence-based practices. And uh, there is a lot of money being offered, and there's going to be so many more treatment facilities that will be evidence-based practice. At Fairbanks, we're very, very proud to be evidence-based. In 75 years in the community, I know that Fairbanks has worked a lot with IU Health, Indiana University, and... I use School of Nursing in the research department, and it has been a wonderful partnership. Um, we've had many of the researchers attend our Susan Lee conference, and you were mentioning about the animal studies, and it's just fascinating to see the work that you are all doing with that. Well, and we, we work strategically along three primary goals. And those were to decrease the number of people with substance use disorders, to decrease the number of people that die as a result of an opioid overdose, and to decrease the number of babies born that have been exposed to substances in utero, unplanned substances in utero. And um, those three were our guiding light of the kinds of studies we would fund. And the portfolio was pretty broad in those areas, five areas of our capacity. You know, we hear so much in the news about all of the negatives, and this is just so exciting. So, so $50 million is what has been provided to do these studies. Tell me about some of the recipients and what are you, what is happening in our community with this amazing program. So the $50 million is intramural. So um, the funding is through the schools, through the campuses, and this is all the campuses, and uh, through the Office of Vice President of Research and the, the President. So uh, these are funds uh, generally that uh, when we conduct research, we have uh, indirect money that comes back to the school to uh, that provides infrastructure for research. So it's these funds that are being used to reinvest in the research infrastructure. But the interesting thing that has happened is that as investigators have moved along, they have submitted for funding and have been very fortunate to be uh, awardees in uh, in funding. So um, we that that is the idea that we not only build capacity for this emergency, but we always create, we always want to create teams and sustainability for the next emergency. Getting extramural funding is part of that. So that's a collateral outcome, I think, that uh, we've achieved. The kinds of projects that we have um, funded in, includes the animal model that I uh, mentioned a little bit early, uh -huh. trying to understand the environmental effects. We have uh, uh, investigators that are developing new uh, computer adaptive screening tools that can assess not only for um, mental health kinds of issues, but also for addictions quickly um, with less items. Uh, and 
those investigators are working uh, with the criminal justice criminal justice system and other uh, settings. We have investigators that are working in schools that are working toward helping uh, children with uh, disruptive uh, behaviors using uh, dialectical behavioral therapy to help children um, uh, be aware of their emotions and responses that have had some uh, very good results at this point. We're very early, I, I should say that. Our first uh, set of projects were funded in January of 2018 and second set of projects in October. So uh, we're, we're learning as we go. Um, but we're working in uh, 29 counties as well uh, throughout the state. So uh, the the data, data infrastructure, a number of projects that are secondary data analysis to understand the characteristics of um, um, prescribing mm -hmm. and um, some of the influences of prescribing in uh, different areas. We have... Um, Studies. Let's see, I, I talked about some of the applied uh, studies. Policy analysis, some of the first projects that came out were really policy analysis of the evidence-based policy options that our elected officials could consider. And a follow-up survey of uh, some of the policy leaders in uh, the environment to understand the um, likelihood or their appetite for different policy options, which I think is always helpful uh, to understand those um, opinions. And uh, community and um, workforce development, I think one of the examples I gave you of um, our work in the workforce assessment and the trying to understand the type of people that are working in the areas, their scope of practice in the state and where those opportunities may be is an example of mm -hmm. one of those. You mentioned the education, and I think it's a great opportunity just to let our listeners know about Hope Academy High School, which is a free charter high school that is completely focused on young kids that are struggling with substance use disorders and bringing that education and therapeutic process into their their schooling and their education. So, so how big of a problem is substance use, uh, specifically opioid addiction in Indiana? Well, I, I would say um, it's right up there at the top. I think some of the early work in 2017, uh, the rate of drug overdose deaths had significantly increased from about 22.5 per 100,000 people all the way up to 29.4. So that, that's a big increase. The statewide costs were estimated to be about $4.3 billion of addictions in 2017. Wow. And furthermore, one of the first things we did at the Grand Challenge is try to understand the experience of our community. And we did a survey of Hoosiers. And um, in 2018, early, we learned that two out of three residents knew someone that was battling with addictions. Absolutely. And one of four reported a friend with an opioid addiction. So one of five or a family member. That's pretty compelling. Yes. Um, and not only that, uh, it not only involved our people, but the issues around neonatal abstinence syndrome were prevalent so and, and high. It was high nationwide. But then what happened in um, 
the state was that there was a uh, initiative where they were drawing uh, cord blood in 21 hospitals to understand the exposure of uh, babies that were born uh, in Indiana, and more than 25 babies uh, that had cord blood and drawn, there was an estimate of 14% tested positive for opioids, wow. and 20% of all tests confirmed the presence of, of multiple substances. So is it a big mm. problem? It's a problem, yes. It's a problem for adults. It's a problem for young people. It's a problem for older people. We also had problems with the increased prescribing rate for opioids. And it's a problem for babies. It just, it truly, substance use disorder does not discriminate. And it is affecting all of our communities. And this is so um, encouraging and hopeful to see the work that you all are doing to bring light to the crisis, but also the solution. So we, we definitely thank you for that. So... Tell us about the Grand Challenge. What is it? What are you investigating? Um, I know we've already spoken about that a little bit, but if you would. Yeah, so um, our, our idea, of course, is building on our capacity and the expertise that we have here and deploying our efforts in partnership with the governor, with uh, you know, originally it was IU Health and Eskenazi, but there's so many others now that are involved and engaged. It is uh, not uncommon for people to reach out to us for a conversation. It's not uncommon for people to uh, email or just want to talk privately about what they're experiencing. Um, so it has been uh, one of these efforts that it's true that we have efforts that are focused on, uh, about reducing substance use, decreasing opioid deaths, and decreasing babies born that are exposed. Uh, it's true that we are deployed in our greatest areas of uh, capacity. But the grand challenge is also about profound, sustainable partnerships that are win-win where the community has benefit. IU provides that benefit, but then the, and quite honestly, a partnership is a wonderful benefit to an investigator too. It, uh, it signals that this is evidence that's important. It's, it signals that this is evidence and that is trustworthy and people will use. And quite honestly, these great partnerships will not only provide sustainability, but also uh, provide opportunities for dissemination and implementation in their own communities. Because there's nothing like a partner that has a heart for partnering and fixing a problem that can powerfully um, deploy those results in a way that's either with their own community or with our uh, policymakers or other organizations. The addiction crisis, there is a large passion and force that is rising up uh, to tackle this, this crisis that is happening in our city. Um, what would you say is the most eye-opening uh, thing that the Grand Challenge has revealed? I think the most eye-opening thing has been the response, um, the community response. It, the, the science we're sort of used to. We, that's what we do. And uh, we are doing it with partners. But I can't say I've ever had a time in my career where um, people have reached out to me about research. People, not other scientists. 
but they're hungry for a result. They're eager for not a five-year study, a shovel-ready study that can help them uh, tomorrow. And after the announcement in October of 2017, I had so many emails that I had to get help to respond to people and contacts. Um, people that wanted to tell their story, people yes. that wanted to know more about the uh, Grand Challenge, um, companies uh, sometimes that uh, had some aligned interest. Uh, and in, in fact, one of the things that we did early is set up a conceptual model of um, engagement, of community engagement, so that we could think again about how do we involve as many people as we can um, instead of one person at a time. Because the request for engagement ranged from we'd like to be on a listserv and see what you are doing to we'd like to be involved in one of these studies to we'd like to partner with you mm. in this way, in this win-win. In. So um, we ended up uh, developing it, and then from that framework, uh, trying to figure out who can help people. Um, because as one person, there could be great delays, and this was not the kind of thing uh, that you wanted to um, have a delay in connecting people. So we connected many, many uh, to teams. We had many partner conversations, and we continue to have many partner uh, conversations. It's still not unusual today for someone to reach out just for a conversation to say, is there a way we can uh, work together in uh in this way, we've had uh, community partners that have uh, reached out to us that we're working with uh, towards some, for example, stigma reduction uh, strategies. And I, I think that that was the most uh, surprising. And it, it came from the heart of Hoosiers that were experiencing problems with addiction, reaching out to say, I know I'm the other part of you. So what can we do together to fight this problem right. that can make a profound difference? How long do you see the Grand Challenge continuing? So this Grand Challenge, uh, has a it was a five-year uh, time limit. Uh, so it ends in 2022. And the idea was uh, we deployed quickly phase one, which were those shovel-ready pro projects, and then uh, second phase two in uh, October, which we, we we did a lot of work around scoping reviews, discussion groups, dialogues, and ideas lab to try to generate some interesting uh, ideas that we've never thought of before. We brought communities together in these discussion, and then uh, the teams went forth and developed proposals that were scientifically reviewed and selected, and uh, they began in October. So we have a very good group of uh, projects that are underway now. Uh, the, the results will be emerging by the end of the year and um, in, into next year. And some of them are going to be a little bit longer, so they'll be closer to the 20 uh, to 22. And um, But we are seeing this interplay with uh, partners, interplay with the projects that are progressing and uh, showing some interesting uh, results. So we need to imagine what 
the next phase will look like. But um, I, I imagine it's not going to be a uh, public call like we've had in the past. It's going to be um, more of targeted, high-impact kinds of uh, initiatives that we're starting to see emerge from the projects that are underway now or with, with the partners we're engaged with. So that's a good segue into how can facilities like Fairbanks help? Well, I think there are any number of ways that facilities like uh, Fairbanks can help. Well, first of all, uh, Fairbanks is Fairbanks. And uh, the the work that's done there is amazing, inpatient, outpatient. The uh, high level of evidence-based practices that occur there and uh, compassionate uh, care, as well as the Hope Academy. I have to say personally, I've been to a number of the graduations. It is um, inspiring, and I just love to see the young people graduate with such yes. resilience and hope. So I, I am um, an admirer, uh, I would say. Thank so uh, Fairbanks can keep on doing what they're doing so well, uh, number one. But I think on a more technical aspect, there's always opportunities to uh, volunteer for advisory boards for uh studies. So uh, I know in my own studies, we have advisory boards. And um, those advisory boards, sometimes they even start before the study is submitted for funding. They help us generate the questions that we're going to raise. They help us pick the design and methods and the outcomes that are most important to people. And sometimes they work with us throughout the study and the dissemination of results. So there are those kinds of uh, opportunities, I think, to um, engage. In terms of the Grand Challenge, we have a community advisory board that is uh, guiding the Grand Challenge that we look for uh, community input. So those are ways that aren't um, high, high uh, time uh, um, utilization that, uh, that you can be helpful in uh, intermittent ways. Um, but then there are opportunities. I, I um, do believe there things that partners can think about together, like a uh, network, a learning network, are, are participating in studies together the, to go for additional extramural funding. Yes. So that goes from advised to uh, being uh, a, a partner, either a partner with uh, IU or with investigators. Um, but I think there's unlimited opportunities to think about what might be possible to not only build uh, relationships with IU and uh, others, um, but also to bring other people into this network to learn together. Indiana has such a strong recovery community, and there are so many partners and organizations that are passionate about making a difference and making an impact in this crisis. And um, I know there are many organizations that are coming together and working together so that we're not reinventing the wheel, but uh, um, it is very important to have that collaboration with the different pockets of the community. And I, I also know, so I think it reminds me, I did an op-ed uh, last year, five things anybody can do, you know, to, to help fight addictions. But one, uh, a couple of the things um, relate to 
knowing where the treatment centers are mm -hmm. and knowing what the volunteer efforts are in the treatment centers. So learn about them and volunteer. So uh, I think that's one of the wonderful things you can do for the community because it not only helps the people you serve, but it helps the community you serve yes. learn about addictions and help in a way that they can. I actually am the alumni relations officer at Fairbanks, and I work with our volunteers and our alumni. And at Fairbanks, we have 180 volunteers that help out in various aspects and, of course, boards and committees that um, it is – we're, we're always looking for people to come in and help. And so I'm sure that uh, along with the Grand Challenge, it looks like there's more and more opportunities to get involved uh, as, as we continue to battle the, the addiction crisis. So when it comes to addiction issues... Are you hopeful about Indiana's future? You bet I am. Um, I, I think together is, is a very important uh, concept of, of the partnership. And I would say we're already starting to see better outcomes. So most recently, I heard data that the drug overdose death rates have declined 12% in 2018, which is more than the national average. The opioid prescriptions in Indiana are down 12%. Again, uh, we're, we're ahead of the curve. The number of addiction treatment providers in Indiana has increased 42% since uh, 2014. And uh, you, you may know that the Medicaid waiver expanded addiction uh, treatment. Uh, uh, to 1.6 million Hoosiers and more than 56,000 people in Indiana have received care utilizing the waiver. So uh, definitely in the right direction. Right. We're starting to see more residential treatment increasing as well. So in addition to having profound partnerships, I do believe we're going in the right direction. The data is telling us and we see it. So I'm hopeful that we are going to help build the resilient community together. Yes. Uh, Governor Holcomb said that this grand challenge, we can deliver more hope to the far too many hopeless. How do you foresee the research eventually benefiting patients such as the ones that we are serving at Fairbanks? Oh, I, I think we're going to see a better understanding about what treatment works uh, for whom. There, there are some questions that, were, uh, that aren't answered, for example. And as we get these results, I think each result will impact uh, significant numbers of people. And I also have to say that these unique partnerships that we have made are sustainable. Um, so with those partnerships come many opportunities, not only to solve this problem, but to solve future problems. And uh, I think one of the collateral things about the Grand Challenge is we've done a lot of training. So and it's collateral training because they're trained as part of our research team. So, um, for example, 55 community mental health staff and providers were trained in evidence-based intervention techniques to reduce uh, substance use in one of our projects, and that's the Family-Based Justice Improvement Project in Wayne and Tippecanoe counties. Um, and then... We also um, have had a, a number of conferences to help to translate some of the 
evidence-based practices that are available, have dialogue about harm reduction strategies and, and those kinds of effects that I think were incredibly important in um, spreading. So I, I think that we not only have seen changes in education because of our work, we've, um, we, we've started to anticipate the results of very positive signals about learning more about how we can do better. So the grand challenge focused on reducing the incidence of substance use disorder, decreasing the number of opioid fatalities, and to reduce the number of babies born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. That is a grand challenge indeed. And we are so grateful for IU and for you, Dean Newhouse, to be involved with this project. It is... Um, it really shows a lot of compassion and care and concern for the community. Um, at Fairbanks, we like to say, together we can. It's a rather open-ended statement that means we can do more and overcome more when we do it together. And it sounds like the grand challenge is very much focused on that. So what does, how would you finish the statement, together we can, I would say, uh, together we can build a resilient community to support health and recovery from addiction. That is the goal. That is uh, my hope, my desire as a woman in long-term recovery from the education standpoint, from every pocket of our community. I hope and I pray that we can do that. This has been Recovery Talks, a Fairbanks podcast. If you or a loved one needs support in the journey of recovery, the experts at Fairbanks Treatment and Recovery Center can help. Visit our website at fairbanksrecovery.org for recovery resources or call 800-225-HOPE for immediate help. Dr. Newhouse, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for the invitation and your partnership. It is our pleasure. Thank you for listening. <laughs>